0: Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 61, After Hours, The Barfield Buffet, Part 2. Hello everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Barfield Month. Having all of these guests on the show this past month has only really just confirmed for me that while there are some rather strange-sounding ideas from Barfield, He also has some ideas which are really quite fascinating and well worth further exploration. We began to wrap up Barfield Month last week by hosting a Barfield Buffet. We had Dr Charlie Starr, Landon Lofton, Dr Troy Vine, Dr Max Leif and Dr Michael DeFuchsia. Today we head to the dessert tray to wrap up this buffet. We have just three interviews today. The first two are about different books that Barfield wrote. The first is on Saving the Appearances, the second is on Poetic Diction. And the last interview is a reflection from Gabriel Schenk. You might recognise his voice from the Walter Hooper tribute, which we hosted a few months ago. Gabriel wraps up Barfield Month for us by telling us a little bit about his own Barfieldian journey, and then talks about his work with the Owen Barfield Literary Estate on owenbarfield.org. Not wanting to skip a quote of the week, today's comes from Barfield's Worlds Apart. He writes, the obvious is the hardest thing of all to point out to anyone who has genuinely lost sight of it. I've got my cup of tea, so let's get on to today's guests. First up is Dr. Lewis Marcos. Lewis Marcos is professor in English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University and holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. He's written over 20 books, including On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue, with Tolkien and Lewis. Here he is talking about Barfield's book, Saving the Appearances.
1: Like most people today, I did not come to Owen Barfield directly, but by way of his good friend, C.S. Lewis. In fact, the men were born in the same year, 1898, and went to school together. Lewis knew Barfield even before he knew Tolkien. However, whereas Lewis died at 64, Barfield lived until the ripe old age of 99. Now, many people know that Lewis and Tolkien started a group called the Inklings, where Christian writers got together and read out loud their works in progress. But Lewis and Tolkien were only the tip of the iceberg. The group also included Lewis's brother, Warney. It included the famous Charles Williams, Hugo Dyson, and also Owen Barfield. Now, Owen Barfield wrote a very famous book called Poetic Diction, which really influenced Lewis and Tolkien's view of language and the development of language. But what I want to talk about here today is my favorite book by him called Saving the Appearances, a book that he published in 1957. Here, in a nutshell, is what he argues in Saving the Appearances. He says, modern science, since the Renaissance, but really since the Enlightenment, Modern science has killed the mystery of nature and the cosmos. Now, how did it do that? Well, it didn't do it by telling us how the cosmos works. I mean, astronomers all the way back to Pythagoras told us how the universe worked or tried to figure it out. What happens in modern science is no longer do the scientists tell us how nature works, They tell us that nature works apart from ourselves and also apart from our creator. So now science is an object cut off from us, having nothing to do with us. In the Middle Ages and even in the early Renaissance, early man lived in a sympathetic universe. They were in sympathy with nature. In fact, our perceptions of nature partly determined how nature looked and interacted with us. But as we move, starting in the Renaissance and really catching up steam in the Enlightenment, slowly we removed ourselves until nature became a machine that has nothing to do with us. Now, the way that Barfield helps us to understand this, and this is my favorite part of the book, and I still think it's relevant today, is by explaining the difference between Copernicus and Galileo. As most of you probably know, both Copernicus and Galileo argued that we don't live in a geocentric or Earth centered universe, but that we live in a heliocentric or Sun centered universe. And yet, even though when Galileo said that, he caused all sorts of problems for himself and was put under house arrest, when Copernicus said many of the same things only a generation earlier, he didn't really get into that much trouble. So what's the difference between Copernicus and Galileo? This will help us to understand the great paradigm shift that occurred starting in the Renaissance and again, picking up speed in the Enlightenment. All right, when Copernicus suggested a geos- sorry, a heliocentric or sun-central model, he was only suggesting another model. He said, you know what? If we put the sun at the center instead of the earth at the center, I think it explains better the things we see with our eyes when we look up into the heavens. In other words, he suggested maybe a sun-centered model would do a better job of saving the appearances making sense of what we saw. Do you know that back in B.C., in the 3rd century B.C., Aristarchus, one of the great thinkers of the Library of Alexandria, he had suggested a heliocentric model, you know, almost 2,000 years before Copernicus, but it wasn't accepted because it didn't seem to make enough sense of what we saw. So all Copernicus was doing is saying, let's try another model. That wasn't that controversial. But when Galileo came along, he said something different. He said, my friends, I have looked through my telescope. I have seen the heavens, and I'm telling you, we live in a heliocentric or sun-centered model. He wasn't just suggesting another model for looking at the world. He was suggesting this is the way the world is. This is the way nature works apart from us. Even if there were no human beings to see it, this is the way nature works, end of argument. That caused a great cultural shift because again, it broke us and our perceptions off from nature as a creation of God. And once you turn nature into an object, it becomes a thing. It becomes merely our house, as it is today, and not our home, as it was for the medievals. Before the scientific revolution, according to Barfield, the world was more like a garment men wore about themselves than a stage on which they moved. But again, we have removed ourselves from the cosmos and made it into a thing. Now, one of the problems there, and C.S. Lewis picked up on this in Abolition of Man, is once we make nature into an object, sooner or later we will make man into an object. We will make ourselves into a thing. But I want to just speak briefly here and conclude with something that Barfield taught me specifically as an evangelical, as someone who has a very high view of Scripture and believes that Scripture is indeed the inspired and even inerrant Word of God. Well, what does what Barfield teaches us in Saving the Experience have to do with it? Well, what happened was that once we made nature into an object, we, without realizing it, started making the Bible into an object. We made it into a thing, and we brought about what Paul would call a dead literalness. You see, in the Middle Ages, Barfield explains, Christians could look at the Bible and see it as both literal and allegorical. We could look at nature and see it as an object, but we could also see it as a product of of our own perceptions of it. We living in a post-Enlightenment world look at the Bible and all we can say is either it's absolutely literal or it's completely mythic and allegorical. So we become either overly fundamentalist or we become a theological liberal. What Barfield helps us to understand is if we can move back to an earlier view in which we participated in the natural world and also participated in the Bible, then we can understand that the Bible can be historical. It can be accurate. There really wasn't Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses, but that at the same time, the Bible is also allegorical. It's even mythic. It speaks to us in a magical, enchanted way. Once we restore the participation we lost with the cosmos, we can start to understand, as Tolkien taught Lewis, that Jesus can be a fact, a historical figure who actually died and rose, but that he can also be a myth, that he can speak to us not only on the literal level, but on the mythic level. And so we can understand again that the Old Testament can be a book that, is historical and accurate but is also one giant prophecy pointing forward to christ owen barfield is someone who can help us to re-enchant the world again next up we have matt nelson matt
0: was on a skype session video with me a few months ago talking about how to get started reading c.s lewis Matt is an author, apologist, and full-time fellow with Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire Institute. Matt is gonna be talking about what is probably Barfield's most popular book, Poetic Diction.
2: I first discovered Owen Barfield many years ago. I had always heard his name mentioned any time that C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or you know the Inklings were mentioned, but I, I always kind of wondered who this this mystery figure was that often gets mentioned with these you know, giants of the Christian faith like Lewis and Tolkien, but you know, you, you often didn't hear, it kind of got cut off there and people didn't talk about Barfield a whole lot. What, when it really changed for me as far as getting to know who he was and, and how profound some of his thinking was, was in an interview a couple years ago and uh, a Catholic political commentator was being interviewed uh, on a podcast that I was listening to. And at the end of the podcast, this political commentator was asked to make a book recommendation to the listeners, and he was supposed to limit it to just one. You know, and I was expecting something like maybe The Lord of the Rings or something from Lewis or maybe T.S. Eliot or Russell Kirk, knowing that he was a conservative thinker and a cultural commentator. But he recommended Owen Barfield's Poetic Diction, a a book I had heard of but had never uh, thought I had any real reason to rush out and get. Well, after hearing that, I thought there must be a reason for this. And what bothered me was the the commentator who recommended this book didn't really say why, which um, really just piqued my interest even more. So I thought I got to get this book and, and check it out. Well, of the Barfield. Uh, works that I've been exposed to, I'd have to say that this is my favorite. There's just so much there, so much richness, um, and I have to recommend to everybody to make sure that you get poetic diction and give it a read. Some of the ideas that have captured my imagination from this particular book uh, is, first of all, Barfield's emphasis on the richness and depth of meaning that lies behind the words that we use in the language we speak. Uh, Let me, I'll read a passage from Poetic Diction to to help get this point across that I want to make. So here's what Barfield says. Even the most original poet is obliged to work with words and words, unlike marble or pigment or vibrations in the air, owe their very substance or meaning to the generations of human beings who have previously used them, No poet, therefore, can be the creator of all the meaning in his poem. Well, when you think of art as including, say, literature, uh, poetry in particular, um, and put in a category, say, with carving or sculpting, painting or music, the interesting thing about the raw materials, as it were, that you use uh, to write poetry, uh, the raw material is words. But as Barfield is saying here, unlike you know, marble that's uncar- um, unsculpted or uh, an empty canvas or paints that haven't yet been added to the canvas, the words already carry with them a sort of hereditary depth of meaning since the words represent thoughts. And people have been thinking about words and what words mean, and in a way, meaning has been conveyed through these words to an ever in an ever deepening way through generations. And so we sort of are handed on, as it were, a tradition of meaning in these words that then get applied in certain ways uh, that become poetry or perhaps works of fiction or nonfiction. But the point is that language carries with it this richness and depth of meaning uh, that is that is very unique. And this is something that Barfield talks a lot about uh, in poetic diction. Um, you know, another idea of Barfield's that has captured my imagination is, um, in particular poetry's unique depth of meaning, um, and its ability to instigate through this unique depth of meaning, a felt change in consciousness. So when we think about words as signifying thoughts, you know, or in a more general way of saying it, consciousness, And when we think about this depth of meaning that gets passed on through generations as we think about what words mean and what they represent, um, this collective thinking about the meaning of language that gets passed on, as it were, um, gets, I guess, most forcefully conveyed through poetic language. Now remember, what do we do with poetry? Well, we use poetry to, to describe things or describe experiences that in some way words do not suffice to describe. We we're trying to describe the indescribable in a way. And so poetry is, is replete with metaphor and with uh, literary devices that in a way take our consciousness beyond the word to consider something that can't be fully described in the words being used. So this idea that poetry takes us into this unique um, plane of consciousness beyond just our ordinary, say, prosaic way of thinking um, is something else that I think is is really well described and emphasized in Barfield's writing, especially in Poetic Diction. So if you want to really come to gain a greater appreciation for what it means to be conscious, but also to come to understand how poetry can cont- contribute to our lives as rational creatures, um, and you know, from a Christian perspective, as being made in the image and likeness of God through Uh, the experience of self-consciousness and of our rationality, then read poetic diction because it'll give you a greater appreciation for ourselves in our human nature, but also for poetry in its beauty and in its way to uh, appeal to the human heart through our imagination and through our consciousness. So I guess I'll leave you with a little bit of advice for anyone who wants to dip into Barfield for the first time. I would say and this would especially work as a precursor to reading poetic diction, if you're not reading poetry, start to read poetry. Uh, we have a great tradition within the Catholic faith especially, um, and not, not only the Catholic faith, but um, within maybe better to say the Christian faith of phenomenal poets, uh, whether it's, you know, you want some winsome poetry that also conveys um, some meanings that have some depth and some gravity to them. G.K. Chesterton is a good way to go. Um, if you want to really experience the beauty of the flow of words and the way that words can can convey an objective uh, experience of the beautiful, read Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, or G- uh, George Herbert is another one, an Anglican poet who can really um, pull us, uh, you know, pull on the heart in a way that really uh, lifts us up uh, in, in mind and heart towards God through his poetry. So, Hopkins, Herbert, um, a con, you know, contemporary poet that I really like is Wendell Berry. Um, I come from a more rural area in Canada, and so there's something about Wendell Berry's poetry, or Robert Frost is another great American poet who's got, you know, kind of deals with similar content um, of beauty and nature and, you know, stuff like that. So, Robert Frost and Wendell Berry are great to uh, read. Um, and some, some contemporary poets like uh, James Matthew Wilson and Dana Joya are two um, living young poets that hopefully have many, many more years of writing. And I think they've got some really great stuff, too. So start reading poetry and start to experience for yourself that in that thing that Barfield calls that felt change of consciousness. You might not be able to describe it, you might struggle to describe it, kind of like I have today, but you'll know it when you feel it, that poetry does something to your mind and to your imagination that nothing else does. And so I'll leave you with that. Read Owen Barfield.
0: Lastly, we have Gabriel Schenk, lecturer at Signum University and webmaster to the Owen Barfield Literary Estate at owenbarfield.org.
3: I first came across Owen Barfield as an undergraduate at Aberystwyth University in Wales. I had rediscovered CS Lewis in my undergraduate studies. Uh, I had been a massive fan of Narnia as a child. And when I was 18, I discovered that C.S. Lewis was also an incredible academic and just loved his writing style. And I loved that I could cite his academic work in my own essays about medieval literature. And I would get marks for that. It was just such a fun discovery. Uh, And I really kind of inspired to be like C.S. Lewis in my own academic writing. So when it came to choosing a dissertation topic for my third year, I chose C.S. Lewis, of course, and I chose his Space Trilogy because I thought it was really interesting and I hadn't read it before. And I also wanted to discover more about C.S. Lewis as a person and as a writer. And I came across this book called Owen Barfield on C.S. Lewis, edited by G.B. Tennyson. And it's 170 odd pages just about insights on C.S. Lewis and his work. And it's all kind of essays uh, and interviews uh, by Owen Barfield, who I had not heard of before that point, but who I quickly discovered was incredibly important in. Uh, key to unlocking the mystery of C.S. Lewis for me. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes him as the wisest and best of my unofficial teachers. And if C.S. Lewis is saying that about anyone, you know this is someone to take really seriously and is a really important person in their own right. And that was the impression I was getting from reading these essays and interviews, is that I was getting so much insight into C.S. Lewis but this person Owen Barfield wow he sounded incredible and the the his whole perspective and the way he was uh, looking at things I thought was really special uh, and unique and clearly was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis so some of the things I loved about Lewis his clarity his perspective the way he sort of cuts through a lot of um, nonsense and different ideas and he just sort of He's so clear and uh, thinks about things in a way that other people aren't thinking about things. All those elements I also could see in Barfield. And actually this might have been even the origin of all those things in C.S. Lewis, or at least to some extent. So it was really cool to find out about Owen Barfield and I did a bit of research on him and that led me to Anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner, and that just seemed like a, such an interesting world that I was not expecting to find. I had, hadn't had heard of any of those things before, and I read a bit of Steiner and sort of, you know, it was kind of about auras and other states of consciousness, and I thought, wow, this this is not like We're not in Kansas anymore, uh, Dorothy. You know, this is like this is way out of uh, what I was expecting to find with C.S. Lewis, and it's clearly a whole other world that I would like to research and read about more sometime. Um, But I kind of had to dig myself out of that rabbit hole and go back to C.S. Lewis at that point. But then a few years later, I was contacted by Owen Barfield's grandson, and he. wanted to see if I would help out with the website Um, so I jumped at the chance Uh, I'd been doing some website work uh, for authors for a bit and he sort of he was asking me as someone who had website skills and he didn't know that I was already very interested in his grandfather and so he kindly um, gave me some books of Barfields to read and I could read more of what Barfield was was uh, was was thinking about and uh, kind of started to uh, appreciate and understand Barfield as a great thinker in his own right. And I've continued to do that, especially as I've been working on the literary estate website, which is unlike a lot of other literary estate websites. A lot of the time, literary estates are there to be a barrier uh, to stop people from stealing things and to just to put up the official word on how to read the author um the owen barfield literary state is not like that at all it's very very accessible we have a huge amount of information on our website owenbarfield.org and we've tried to make this as easy as possible to read and to search and to share and to understand um I'm putting up a lot of free information, a lot of stories, a lot of essays and articles, and we're always expanding it and refining the information, making it as easy as possible to access. There is this idea in Inkling studies that I've heard a lot, which is that Barfield is incredibly difficult and incredibly hard to access, you need a PhD in Barfield studies just to pick up a book about or by Owen Barfield. And I can understand where that idea comes from, because some of Barfield's work is quite difficult and challenging. Um, Some of his philosophical work, it's it's not small, it's not light. But actually, I think he's no harder to understand or appreciate than C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. R. Tolkien or any other uh, writer that's sort of writing about the sort of things that Barfield is writing about. And I actually found this illustrated to me when I was teaching Barfield at Signum University a few years ago. Signum University is an online institution that specialises in fantasy literature and old languages like Old Norse and Old English. And I lectured on a course called The Inklings and King Arthur, which is based on a textbook edited by Serena Higgins, which is full of incredible essays about the Inklings, so C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams primarily and the relationship those authors had to the Arthurian legend. And in this course we did C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, we did Talking to The Fall of Arthur, both of those are very Arthurian texts, we did Charles Williams's Arthurian poetry, and his uh, uh, Grail story, War in Heaven, but we also did Owen Barfield's novella Night Operation, which isn't as obviously an Arthurian text, but it becomes a Grail narrative, a narrative about the search for the Holy Grail, which is a big part of the Arthurian legend. And so I taught this, court, uh, this text uh, alongside C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and it was really interesting to see the reaction from the students. Uh, Signum, as I say, is an online institution That means that we have students from all over the world and we have students from all kinds of different backgrounds. And I remember one student who is Jewish uh, said that they find C.S. Lewis's Christianity sometimes a little bit of a barrier. I had another student from Japan who, again, sort of found Lewis's Christianity sometimes a bit difficult to understand because they didn't have... Uh, the background knowledge of Christianity in the same way that most people do in the United States or the United Kingdom. And that was really interesting because I don't find C.S. Lewis at all inaccessible, but then that's probably because of my upbringing um, slightly. I mean, he's a very clear writer, but there are things that he's talking about that actually aren't necessarily that accessible. Tolkien is an interesting one um, because he is accessible and easy to understand but then actually we've got so much cultural knowledge about Tolkien um, because of the success of his works. We've all seen the Peter Jackson films which do a pretty good job of explaining what dwarves are and what elves are. These aren't new ideas to most people but actually if you're coming into Tolkien without knowing that stuff or not being as familiar with that as... Uh, other people are, then you will probably find that Tolkien is really difficult to understand and access as well. So I don't think Barfield is any more difficult than Lewis or Tolkien, uh, especially if you're from a background where you're not so familiar with fantasy or with Christianity. And what I found when I taught Night Operation was that all the students, no matter what their background was in, where they were from, or what religion they belonged to, were really engaging with the core ideas that Barfield grapples with in that novella. And out of all the four main authors we looked at, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield, it was Barfield that was the easiest to access, easiest to understand the the core ideas of and kind of the most applicable to the greatest number of people. So that was an interesting discovery because it went against this narrative that Barfield is the least accessible or the most difficult of those four writers. I just don't think it's true. So when we made the Owen Barfield Literary state website as accessible as possible, what we were doing really was just making Barfield's writings um, first and foremost and and just easy to find and easy to read. We didn't have to do any work in making Barfield himself easy to understand. And just by doing that, we're kind of changing the narrative a little bit in terms of what people think of when they think of Owen Barfield. He, he's not this kind of far-off distant figure that you have to have a PhD in order to understand. He's not easy, but he's no harder than Tolkien or Lewis. And if you put the effort in to understand his ideas, his core thinking is very applicable to whoever you are, wherever you're from, And whatever time you're in, uh, I think he's the most um, far-reaching of all the inklings. And that's been such a pleasure to discover and to continue to, uh, to think about as I continue to work for the Owen Barfield Literary Estate.
0: And that is the end of Barfield Month. I'm sure we'll have episodes on Barfield as time goes on, and I would love for there to be a pints with Barfield at some point in the future. But for the time being, I hope this series has piqued your interest in another inkling. Thanks to all of our guests who helped make this possible. Thank you for listening, and thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially those in the top tier, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. Please join us again next time when we'll be going further up, and further in. Cheers.